Hello and welcome to The Frontline, a podcast from ILGA Europe in Brussels. We represent and work on behalf of over 600 LGBTI activist organizations across Europe and Central Asia, and our podcast aims to bring you to the front lines of queer activism in the regions. I'm your host today, Katrin Hugendubel, and in this episode we're discussing the results of ILGA Europe's 12th Rainbow Europe map, which was published on 17th of May, the International Day Against Homophobia, Biphobia, Intersexism and Transphobia, otherwise known as Ida Hobbit. Every year, the Rainbow Europe map ranks all 49 European countries based on the laws and policies in each to ensure equal rights and protection for LGBTI people. Countries are ranked from 0% to 100 with zero representing gross violations of human rights and discrimination and 100 representing full respect for human rights and equality. The past 12 months have marked an unprecedented year in the MAP's 12-year history, with almost no positive legislative change for LGBTI people in Europe. With me to discuss this standstill on both European and national levels and the ways forward are ILGA Europe's Executive Director Evelyn Paradis, our colleague Björk van Rosendahl, Alexa Moore from Transgender NI in Northern Ireland and Kaspar Tsalitis from Mosaica in Latvia. So hello everyone and thanks for joining me today in this conversation. To start us off, Evelyn, could you tell us a little bit about the Rainbow Europe map? So a bit of an introduction to the map and maybe a glimpse into its history as well. Yes, with great pleasure. So the Rainbow Europe map has uh, undeniably become a, a flagship project for for Ilga Europe and probably one of our better known products, to say the least. But the history of the Rainbow Map goes back to 2009 when we, we first published it. And it was it was a real organizational collective discussion that led to the production of the map at the time. And when I mean that, it was that it was a discussion within within our staff team, but also very much so amongst uh, members in terms of needing to have a tool that we would use to measure progress every year, uh, a tool that we could also point to the direction of travel for the movement and for governments. Um, so the idea was really to have to have a measurement that we could start using. Uh, and it was also going to be useful for us in terms of drawing attention of a wider public to the issues of, of LGBTI people. Looking at the the map this year, I mean, it was published last Monday. What's what's the main story this year? What's the what's the headline of publishing the map? Well, the the map this year has been telling little of a worrying story. It's the first time in the the twelve year history of the map that we report on such a wide stagnation. This year, there are actually 70% of the countries on the map whom we're actually not reporting any sort of positive change. Um, there's only 14 countries out of the 49 countries on the map that are where there's a positive change. So that is the that is the worrying story this year. And it's something that we've seen progressively happen. It's not just a, a 2021 story. We have been saying for now two, three years that progress was slowing down. Uh, we had been warning against 
regression and complacency. And this year now, um, this is the story. So it's particularly worrying when we know that we're in a year of of clearly of pandemic, where socioeconomic hardships have been made even more visible, but also where we see the political regression taking place in so many parts of the region and just growing division. So the map this year for us is about saying this is really the time to recommit because the slowing down process is just has just come to a point where it's just too worrying. This trend has to be reversed. We've of course invited Alexa, Kaspers and Brian, you three to look a bit behind that headline and look more closely at, at countries. And maybe maybe Alexa, we, we can start with the UK. The UK has been sliding down from place nine to 10 and actually with Northern Ireland ranking lowest within the UK. Um, so hearing the, the headlines, how does that resonate to the reality you've seen um, in the UK over the last 12 months? Well, I mean, I think um, what was said previously is absolutely right in that it's not just a 2021 issue. Um, this has been happening for, for years now. Um, the In particular, the anti-trans movement um, in the UK and, and to a lesser extent um, in the Republic of Ireland has been getting stronger. It has been being platformed. It has been uh, legitimized by the, by the political class and the media class. Um, and unfortunately, that has led to a stagnation. It had led to previously uncontroversial topics such as banning conversion therapy, such as providing you know, health care for trans people, such as uh, reforming legal gender recognition, uh, which, which the UK government had committed to doing all of these things, um, and then kind of brought to a standstill, essentially, because the, the level of public debate and, and the, the level of toxicity um, that, that these issues um, have, have reached in the UK press and, and in kind of social conversation um, has, has essentially, you know, brought everything to a halt. Um, and, and Northern Ireland has been at this point, quite frankly, for years, you know, we've only recently um, reversed the, the blood ban um, for, for men who have sex with men um, and, and other LGBT folks. We've only recently um, kind of implemented equal marriage um, in Northern Ireland for, for same-sex couples, as well as conversions from civil partnerships to, to same-sex marriages. Um, so, you know, we have been actually making a, a little bit of progress over the past year or two, but it's so stymied by the fact that actually trans rights in particular in the region are just completely and utterly in crisis. Um, our adult gender identity service um, essentially stopped accepting new patients in early 2018. Um, and for three years, that service basically took no new patients. Um, no one knew was was coming in. Uh, that that changed quite recently. So we've we've now started getting some people seen. It's it's not a fully commissioned service. Um, but obviously, access to healthcare has not gone impacts, especially when trans identity is still in the UK viewed as something to be diagnosed uh, as as a disorder to be treated. Uh, which obviously doesn't line up with the with the experiences of communities on the ground. So what we've seen is that lack of access to healthcare has impacted access to legal gender recognition. You can no longer get the medical reports required to to access legal gender recognition, and so the only people who can are ones who pay for private healthcare. Lots of class divides, lots of class barriers. We're seeing, um, you know, in particular, working class trans communities crowdfunding for basic care. 
um, across Northern Ireland, well-being within the community has, has you know, taken a massive downturn. Um, and, you know, community sector as well has, has had it hard um, because we've been trying to push on all of these issues um, while also, you know, in our organization, everyone's trans. So we're all we're all experiencing these issues um, as well as trying to fight against them. Um, so, you know, it is really we haven't been making progress. We haven't had the space to make progress because we've been firefighting. We've just been consistently firefighting on, on so many different fronts to try and 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 stop the rollback of rights, because I think that's where we're where we've reached now. We've reached the point where where governments and states are trying to roll back uh, rights that we have actually already won. Yeah, and I think that's interesting because Evelyn was talking about the the stagnation we have seen for for quite some years. But actually, trans and intersex rights still were were the the area where we did see legal advances, and that's clearly come to a halt. And and you've already rightly said Northern Ireland is actually one of the regions that lost points on that because we see implementation of of procedures that exist not functioning anymore because because of the um, clinics stopping to take in patients as well. And I think another trend we've clearly seen is, is a clear rise in hate. And, and I was wondering if you could just say a little bit on that, because again, the UK, uh, uh, unfortunately, an outstanding example on especially anti-trans rhetoric on the rise and, and the impact that's having on the community. If you could just uh, share a little bit on that. The impact on the community, I mean, imagine the impact on anyone if they're seeing their lives and their identities and their experiences and, and their, their mere right to exist debated in the national press, in, in you know, national um, newspapers on an often weekly basis. You know, often we do see weekly stories, uh, in particular targeting trans children, targeting trans women um, and targeting um, basic access to care, puberty blockers, um, access to legal gender recognition and, you know, es essentially portraying trans communities as a threat, as something that is dangerous um, and, and, and something to, you know, quote unquote, protect women against. Um, and, you know, in Northern Ireland, we kind of see through it, the women's sector in Northern Ireland kind of see through it. We work really, really closely together. And so we haven't seen that same level of anti-trans organizing in Northern Ireland. But what we are seeing now is the attempt to ship that in uh, from Britain. Um, we're, we're seeing, you know, especially in the media, especially where, you know, you, we have a lot of broadcasters who are very um, both sidesy, uh, <laughs> quote unquote, um, but, you know, in a way that really does platform transphobia and homophobia on a, on a consistent basis. And so we are seeing, you know, anti-trans actors being shipped into Northern Ireland um, and, and you know, talking about a Northern Irish trans community that they don't know. Um, and that does have an impact on, on communities on the ground. We've seen mental health rapidly deteriorating, uh, both from, from lack of access to care, but also, you know, this, this, this debate that they're seeing. Uh, constantly trans kids and then trans young people are being told in the media, oh, you're getting health care too quickly. Uh, you're getting puberty blockers too quickly. You're being put on hormones too quickly when, you know, most of us have been waiting for years to even be seen in a gender identity service. So, you know, it 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 is often blatant lies um, being told about trans communities in the press. And we're not really allowed or, or, or given the platform and given the space to to combat those and to to debunk those. Um, and on the topic of hate crime, you know, um, I work very closely with uh, with my colleague Ashleen Comey, who is the um, who was the the hate crime advocacy officer in the Rainbow Project, um, and and now her replacement. And she expected hate crimes to go down 
um, over COVID because you know we're all inside. People aren't people aren't out in the street. Um, we have seen a, a, a as far as I'm aware, I think a 23% increase in reporting of transphobic hate crimes in Northern Ireland. Um, and, and I think it's quite quite a bit higher for homophobic hate crimes. I think it might be around 30%. So, you know, despite the fact that no one's going out, despite the fact that we're all stuck at home, hate crime are still happening. Um, people are people are still um, being victimized um, on the street, experiencing street harassment um, and experiencing abuse. But as well as that, you know, a lot of that abuse now is hidden. Um, we see a, a, a significant rise in trans people, you know, having to move back in uncomfortable family situations, um, being subjected to domestic violence um, and abuse. And so, you know, the, the needs of the community really, really are growing. And the, the statutory services in the region just aren't aren't growing to meet that demand. Thank you. And again, I think you're naming trends that probably others on this podcast, but also others listening, um, clearly recognize um, from their own countries. Um, Kaspers, let's let's turn to Latvia. Um, Latvia firmly stuck on place 41 out of 49 on the map, second lowest EU country only before Poland. Um, and I think, unfortunately, also a real example of stagnation, not only on, on trans rights, but actually across the board on LGBTI equality. Tell us a little bit about the situation in Latvia. Hi, it's like, um, as Catherine Evelyn and Bjorn knows, it's like I'm not really a person that usually complains about situation in Latvia, but it's like the ch- situation is slowly changing. Um, yes, we are very comfortable at the place 41 as a, as a country. And um, for, I, I don't know, six or seven years we are over there. And uh, and what has shown actually the beginning of this year, it's like when we actually, we've we showed uh, the data of the last year, but in the beginning of this year, there was a political initiatives not to uh, not to progress, but actually to go down. So, and uh, and this is the situation that really worries us. Uh, the lack of change is like we have absolute uh, zero political will in this, and when we speak in the majority of the political will, it's like we've been non-stop working and we've seen some of the progress that has happened in a, in a various fields but then when it comes to politicians and uh, then it just rolls back it's we have uh, we have many initiatives that uh, moved uh, moved us forward we have two constitutional court uh, judgments the, these are historic judgments which pave the way which clearly gives uh, gives a roadmap for uh, for a country what to do and the initiatives that we get the next day is actually to roll back and this is we've seen this as as a very organized campaign uh, against uh, lgbt people against gender equality and this is like we this is the clear mess uh, message that we've been sent and what what happened right on the 7th of january this year they were proposing that uh, that not just marriage that is a union between man and a woman which we already have but also a family is a union between man and a woman and that the parents can be only a father and uh, and a mother so it's uh, we are um, as at least some of the politicians we are taking the great example of Poland and uh, following that way and uh, i think we 
we were way much more comfortable in the last place in the European Union than the second last. So, so this is this is where we're, this is where we're going. So, and this is the entire political climate. It's like we have the, we have the anti-LGBT, anti-gender movement. Uh, it's happening very like close to us, and it's slightly influenced by the say, by our eastern neighbor, by some of the lobbying groups that is, are around the Europe. So yeah, it's like the situation is quite, uh, quite strange and quite worrying at the at the moment for the entire community. And being locked down is like it's, it's making things not no better and no in stagnation, but it's making making things uh, things worse. So. Like we're we're talking about stagnation, but I'm I'm really worried that we're actually going to go down. But the message we we had around the map this year is also mm-hmm. the it's the time to reboot and kind of it's the time for everyone to pick up the commitments they had for a long time and really turn around the tide. And as you said yourself, you I mean you're a tireless activist who's usually looking at the the bright side. So could you could you just name a little bit what the proposals are that have been on the table mm-hmm. for a long time where your government would actually need to move to to make a positive change in that worrying situation in Latvia. One and the most uh, most important one is what uh, we are working on to take uh, take away the constitutional amendments proposal. So this is the this is one of the one of the main works. We have the so-called um, life spouses bill, or which is also seen as a cohabitation or the partnership bill, depending who calls it what. But um, so and this is the gender neutral proposal. This has been on the table and in our agenda since uh, 2018, and and it moved pretty well uh, forward until it just got stuck. So and then we move it again, and then it got stuck. So and this is what we're wor- uh, working on, and it's uh, we have I think one of the best teams that we could imagine working uh, working on that. But still, we're facing the obstacles nonstop. The second one that we're um, what we're working is the hate crime legislation and hate crime and a hate speech legislation. So LGBT or sexual orientation or gender identity are not explicitly mentioned uh, hate crime article in the in the criminal law. Obviously, it is seen as an and other, and sometimes uh, the police sees it. And others, sometimes the police doesn't seize it. So, and it's always the proof. It's always uh, it's always proving that what uh, was it or not. And we, and we've been working on the past two years and proving that the police is incapable on investigating uh, hate speech uh, and hate crimes. But yeah, these are the things that are uh, we have on the on the table. And uh, yeah, and then to take away the take away the anti legislation which was as well last week uh, it was proposed um in uh, changes in the children's rights protection law so that would that would uh, limit our rights in order to survey young people because uh, we did a survey from the Ghent university about lgbt uh, youth and right this week we received together with the uh, idahot we we received uh, a request from the police to explain what is the survey, which is which is kind of worrying. So our work is to take those initiatives away and uh, 
keep on working on and it's like it's the same it's like we've been blocked at every single uh, moment when we we could go forward we're blocked by an, any an other initiative against us i think it reflects um also a bit what alexa has been saying that kind mm -hmm. of imported opposition that kind of talked up contradiction of children's rights and, and women's rights against LGBTI rights, the attempt from an opposition to play out um, certain groups against each other. And in that, actually keeping everyone busy, as you say, with just kind of pushing back rather than building building progress forward. Let's look at the Netherlands for a second. And I think one thing to mention there is that one new criteria that ILGA Europe introduced this year is a, a point for recognition of non-binary identities. And, and that's, um, as far as I, I know, one of the points where the Netherlands um, moved. So maybe you could say a little bit about that, Bjorn. But otherwise, Netherlands, traditionally a front runner on LGBTI equality. Now, I would say a bit lost midfield on place 12. What's going on? Not much movement. Um, how do you see the situation? Indeed, the Dutch government uh, announced last year to scrap uh, sex from ID cards as per 2024-2025. And they, they're doing that alongside other changes they're going to make in identity cards. And that is why we need to wait for uh, a couple of years. It is a positive development, uh, however, but one that we need to wait for. Another positive thing that the government did in this field is that they've developed a toolbox on gender markers. Uh, which should help the government, other institutions and, uh, and, and companies, for instance, um, in trying to stay away from asking for gender markers when that isn't necessary. However, the uh, deletion of uh, sex markers from uh, identity cards is not uh, going to be applied on passports. Um, the government said that they are willing to explore adding access to the passport instead of um, gender markers in the future. Um, but the government also said that they want to see what other countries are going to do before they, they act. Um, and equally, the government uh, is not moving to enact the possibility to not register sex at birth. So these are things that the government yeah, is, 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 is really waiting to for to see what the rest of the world is going to do. Uh, and also they said they, they want to see what kind of jurisprudence is going to emerge around that. So as you say, Katrin, it's, it's been a, a mixed back with some progress, but not a lot of things have been put into motion at the moment yet. So another example of that is that the government following a vote in parliament is likely to move to ban um, sexual orientation as discrimination ground in the constitution. However, we are waiting at the moment for a second reading in parliament. Um, and this is something that the new parliament uh, will need to do. There have been elections in March. So the new parliament that is now is in, is in place will need to move to, to, to a second reading. A positive development, however, was that during the first reading of this law, the Minister of Eternal Affairs uh, declared that the existing ground for discrimination, which is based on gender, does include gender characteristics, gender identity and expression, which will mean that trans and intersex people uh, are considered, at least by the government, to be covered under this, uh, this law. The uh, other developments around the reform of the legal gender recognition law 
um, are that a public consultation ended earlier this year. And the government is proposing to abolish an expert opinion uh, requirement for gender reassignment procedures, which would effectively establish self-determination. Um, but... Uh, the report that came out of that uh, out of that consultation fails to provide for non-binary people and those under 16 who would still need to go uh, through a uh, court procedure. So again, a, a, a mixed bag very much. Another thing that is stalled is that in January of this year, Parliament voted in favor with the majority to ban conversion therapy. This commitment was repeated by eight political parties uh, who signed the Rainbow Ballot Agreement I believe in March of this year, an initiative by COC Netherlands together with uh, other LGBTI organizations to build political support uh, for LGBTI issues ahead of the elections. So the conversion, ban on conversion therapy was again uh, included uh, as a commitment by the political parties who signed this ballot agreement. These eight parties are very likely to, uh, some of them at least, to become part of the, 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 the future government. So there is a good hope that the, 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 the ban on conversion therapy will become a reality in, uh, in the new future. But again, it's to wait for a new government to come into uh, place, Katrin. I mean, I think a bit pretty grim picture, but um, we we have been celebrating um, Ida Hobby Day on on Monday. There were lots of conferences, speeches, declarations, lots of commitments, and so I guess the the question, and maybe Evelyn, you can start a little bit looking at the, the rainbow map. Like, what's the what's your call on heads of states across Europe? Like, what you know, if we talk about rebooting. What is it we actually need to see that we're not seeing at the moment that could really make a change over the next 12 months? Well, I think that the call that we've been making this week, uh, as you say, Katrin, and both uh, in our public communication, but also in all of the many meetings and conferences that the Elgi Europe team has been uh, attending and, and contributing to, I think the call has been, again, uh, in a way, but just act. and And I think it is also been about the importance of changing the dynamics. The point for us to to name all of the negative trends, to name in very stark terms, as you know, Alexa and and Caspas have the the realities, is also to to really wake up people, wake up governments, wake up decision makers who have been for too long on have been functioning on this idea and notion that the progress was unavoidable kind of thing, um, that it was just we were on this slope where things would keep on getting better and better, uh, which, again, we have said for some from for a couple of years now, we have said um, careful, this is not the reality. This is not what we are observing. Uh, you can't be complacent. And um now it's it's it is that point of stagnation and um and uh and possible regression but the flip side is i mean caspas did name it bjorn did name it <laughs> alexa did name it we also know that there are lots of initiatives formal legislative political across the board and i think we we need 
policymakers, decision makers to really act, to no longer stay in that moment where they say either, well, this year, the past 12 months, it's either been the pandemic is, is used as an excuse to not do the work. But also we, we, we do realize that the context is a, is a lot more polarized than it, it was a few years back in, in most countries by now. And so it does require um, a bit more courage to act. But we also know by now, collectively, we the picture is so clear as to what needs to happen, what also is the impact, the positive impact of working. So, so I think that's what we're trying to focus people's attention to is we know what to do. We know it does good. All it requires, in effect, uh, I, I know it's not that simple, but it should be that simple. All it requires is for all of us to work together and to get to get the work done. And I mean, based on the information we have, there's at least, you know, a dozen countries that have uh, proposals on the table that if they were to be uh, adopted, our message next year by by the next Ida Hobbit would be positively different um, because the map would have been would be positively different. So, so that's what we're that's what we've been saying all week long, and we'll definitely continue to say for for the next next little while. I think, I think you make a really important point about courage, Evelyn, uh, because uh, one thing that I think has been lacking, especially in the UK. Even whenever you're looking at the kind of more, you know, socially liberal, left-leaning uh, parties like the Labour Party, like the, you know, the SNP in in Scotland, and and even um, you know, Sinn Féin and others in Northern Ireland, is even you know where they may have a really good policy on LGBT rights, they may have you know, uh, they may say all the right things, they're not willing to stick their stick their kind of neck on the line and say yes, actually we are going to fight for trans rights, we are going to stand up and publicly support our, our trans uh, siblings, you know, in their fight for rights. I do think that, you know, especially, if, you know, I, I can only particularly speak for the UK and Ireland, but in, in our context, uh, there is definitely just a complete lack of willingness um, to kind of, you know, be out and proud of being a trans ally, um, especially in England and, and, and kind of Scotland and Wales. Um, but, you know, I do think that that once the political will is there, once once there are parties who are willing to get their act together and say, actually, OK, you know, LGBT rights aren't going to move on their own. This isn't some kind of march of progress that we can just sit back and take credit for. We need to put work in um, for LGBT communities to actually believe in us. Uh, and to be honest, I know it, across the UK and Ireland, LGBT folks are starting to to vote as well. They're starting to move away from parties that that previously would have monopolized the LGBT vote because you know they're they're seen as the the socially liberal, the pro the pro LGBT. Um, folks are starting to see through them and see that actually they're not doing anything on trans rights. They're not doing anything um, to to end intersex genital mutilation. They're not doing anything um, to tackle conversion therapy. Um, or, or so many other issues, hate crime, uh, all of these different things. Um, and so I think that LGBT people are starting to see through that and see through some of those parties that will claim to stand up for us, but really won't put their neck out on the line. Yeah, and I think maybe just to add to that, what we've seen a lot over the last 12 months in the polarized situations is on the one hand, more 
outspokenness in, in defense of LGBTI equality. So more bolder statements, I think, also coming, for example, from the president from the European Commission, but also from some governments, but very often then lacking kind of the the picking up the commitments back home themselves and kind of leading, giving that leadership of doing the, the right thing and, and in that sense, creating a momentum again. Um, Björn and Kaspers, do you want to come in at that point as well, maybe? When you were speaking about the courage, is obviously I am looking at the uh, the European Commission. So and uh, and this is what uh, what I think it's time. It's like I know we're requesting quite a lot from the Commission. I know they cannot interfere in, in internal issues, but this is one message that uh, I can clearly give. It's like we want and we are teaching the rest of the world how to live life. So how to deal with the human rights issues. And we are investing a large amount of money in, in order to improve the human rights situation while the situation in the European Union is going down significantly. In, this, in, the, in several countries, we look horrible. It's like sometimes we look even worse as parts of the European Union. We look worse than in some of the countries where we're investing uh, in investing resources. The rule of law in parts of the Europe is in danger. The same was as, as well in Latvia. The constitutional uh, court judge was not approved because they were too liberal. And another court judge, the commission... Um, were like asked very questions that included as well a slur. So these are the things, and this is the reputation of the European Union. This is the reputation of the European Commission. And and this is for them to understand if they don't take the courage in this, it's this is how they're going to look. A, a, a union where the human rights, uh, situ- human rights are abused, significantly abused, and you cannot do anything in your own country, in your own union. And, and then you go the next day somewhere else and says, like, you know, you have to improve the situation while, the next, while in your own house there is uh, a court's that are politically run. There are uh, t- rights taken away from uh, from the citizen uh, from the European citizens. So it's like I would really encourage to take European Commission some courage to start acting and and do whatever whatever you uh, you can on. And Bjorn, when you were talking about the Netherlands, you were you were actually mentioning a few processes that are on the way, and so maybe you're the you're the right person to start off a last round of. But where is change actually happening? Where do we look for the positive um, in that story? Um, looking forward, kind of what? Where's the hope for change um, that you're seeing um, at the moment? And so from the outset, I would first say that I think that there is frustration in the Netherlands, both on the side of civil society, as well as on the side of the government, that the the Netherlands for, I think, the, the third or the fourth consecutive year is not part of the top 10 of countries leading the uh, the Ilga Europe uh, rainbow map. Um, so I think that that contributes to a will to, to, to change these things. However, as I've just told, political processes some take time. Yeah, political leadership is an important ingredient to to go beyond, you know, the the, the will to be progressive, um, and to make sure that things really change into practice. 
I would say the driving force continues to be civil society. It was civil society that, you know, came up with the the, the rainbow ballot um, uh, proposal or this initiative to, to 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 create political leadership ahead of the elections. It is civil society in the Netherlands, like in so many other countries, that continues to push for the change and to uh, continues to show why this change is so important for LGBTI people. Um, at this very moment, and this is also what has been, um, yeah, mostly inspiring me is see, seeing that through the year that we had, through a year full of challenges around COVID nineteen, through uh, through challenges in relation to growing opposition, undermining the, uh, the 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 work that the LGBTI movement is doing, it's civil society that is still able to lead the way for the government and to make sure that political change, legal change, and eventually societal change is 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 enabled by constantly being there. So for me, it is uh, yeah. At the center, there is really all of those activists who continue to do this important work. Alexa wants to join to the positive perspective. <laughs> I think there is a lot of good work going on, and I mean, you know, um, the the justice minister in Northern Ireland has committed to including um, transphobia as a as a protected or sorry as a recognised form of hate crime as well as, you know, um, differences in sexual characteristics and, 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 gender, and gender expression. So, you know, we are moving we are moving forward in terms of some legal rights. You know, the, the ministers for communities and um, for finance have committed to bringing forward new gender recognition legislation and new, um, we, we've developed LGBTQI plus strategies and gender equality strategies in Northern Ireland, which if implemented would be absolutely fabulous. Um, but I, I, I do think that it is it is the implementation where we fall. It is it is in the kind of um, in, in states and in governments um, taking action that, that things just kind of grind to a halt. Um, so, you know, we are absolutely going to have to keep pushing. And I think just another thing, uh, and I'd say this is similar in the Netherlands as well. Um, our government likes to pontificate about how great it is. Um, on human rights and how great it is on LGBT rights and how, you know, how they're doing so much work to support LGBTQI plus communities um, around the world uh, who are in who are in much worse positions than, than you know, us lucky ones um, in the UK are. Um, and in reality, you know, they're they're doing virtually nothing. You know, they're they're not supporting LGBTQI plus movements brought, uh, kind of around the world. They're actually creating an environment where anti-trans movements in particular are festering or bubbling up and are able to actually get funding, get charity status um, and, and, and start um, you know, branching out beyond the UK. So I think that in particular, from my perspective in the UK, we are, we are, we are now at the point of exporting transphobia. Um, it is it is becoming another form of imperialism um, that, you know, the, the UK's kind of homegrown transphobia problem is now just being shipped wholesale around the world. And I do think we really, really need to tackle that. And, you know, that has to come from government as well. That has to come from a clampdown of, 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 of an, on anti-trans um, rhetoric, on, on anti-trans um, kind of movements and, and, and kind of hatred from a governmental level. So we're going to keep pushing um, and, and, you know, love and support to everyone else who is around the world as well. Thanks a lot, Casper. Yeah, I, I could uh, more than 100% agree with Bjorn, the powers in, the, in our movement and in, in, in our community. So for a long um, 
I, I, I see the progress in Latvia with that. For a long time, we've been saying that Mosaica was the was the only LGBT organization in the country. We're not anymore. It's like we have new leaders coming in. We have like uh, we have new organizations brought. We have new uh, cultural movements. Things things are moving and uh, and. By me, I'm just sitting, uh, sitting and enjoying the moment when things are happening around. And uh, I think the power is in our movement because, because this inaction and stagnation um, have moved the people and um, and organizations that never uh, thought uh, to work on these issues. People are getting angry. People are getting tired, and we have. We have fantastic lawyers that are now on board. It's like, we won two cases at the Constitutional Court. It's like, you're not doing anything. Okay, we'll sue you again. It's like, we'll find you where to sue you. It's like, we have businesses that are now way much better, even local businesses with their diversity policies. They're like planets away from what the country is doing. So it's like, we have more and more activism and uh, happening. And this is just a result of inaction, inaction of uh, of a country, of a government. And this is one thing I've been saying is like one great message. If you want me, and I would prefer that, but if you want me to get quiet for a while, just implement some of the things and I will leave you alone at, for a couple months at least. But it's like, but these are the things. It's like people are getting angry. People are getting tired. And this, the, the ball will be rolling. So so that's, that is what, what we're quite happy about. So the power is in the movement. I think also the, the, the new allies and new actors coming in through that inaction is, is a very important point that, that you're making there. Evelyn, a, a last word of... Where's the hope? Where's the change um, that we're seeing? Well, I'm clearly not going to disagree with what Alexa, Kaspers and Bjorn have said. Of course, you know, the the main source of inspiration does remain uh, what LGBTI people themselves are doing. Um, But I, I also think that we are in a moment where it is hard not to see all of the negative and all of the and not to hear all of the the negative voices. Um, and I think it, it is a bit of a discipline that we all need to have to also hear the many positive voices that are around. And so as Kaspar said, you know, it is it is the new allies uh, in businesses. It is, it is the many allies um, that we also see in other civil society movement and social justice. And it's also important to note that, you know, we, we do point, of course, that's our role, right, as 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 civil society to point to where government officials are are falling short but but there are also lots of good government voices around um this week we've heard from the Cyprus government for instance who definitely wants to do its best to become the next Malta on our on our rainbow map um now that's quite an ambition but it's it's good to hear from from countries that they have that ambition so so I think it is also for our own for our own health, but are also to continue to build and to keep the hope to to make sure that we also hear and listen to all of the positive voices because there are many positive voices. Well, I'd like to thank you all very very much not only for joining me for this uh, podcast but also for the tireless 
work, the resilience and the creativity you bring um, to LGBTI equality. Thank you very much for joining. You've been listening to The Frontline, ILGA Europe's LGBTI activism podcast. Please subscribe, like, comment or share wherever you listen to your podcasts and tune in next time when we'll be traveling further on the front lines of LGBTI activism in Europe and Central Asia. Bye for now.